Last night I received a call from a member of the church and unfortunately I missed the call. And then when I get, got back to the individual, I was glad to hear that there was nothing major actually going on in that person's life. But I was shocked by our little short conversation. He mentioned to me that last Sunday he was not able to be at church, neither he nor his wife. And so he missed taking communion. And wanted to know, could he take communion after service today? My initial response, which I didn't tell him, uh, it's no big deal, missing communion on a particular occasion. But then my pastoral response was, let me see if I can find one of the deacons who will serve you and your wife the Lord's Supper uh, after the worship service. I have to admit, I've been in ministry for over 40 years. No one has ever called me to say that they had missed taking the Lord's Supper and they wanted to see if a time could be arranged to do it. Never. So it, it shocked me and I was kind of taken back. But when I thought about it further after he hung up, and in light of the passage that I'm preaching today, I thought that is the right kind of attitude to have. It's unfortunate that the Lord's Supper, or call it the communion service, or call it the Last Supper, or whatever term you want to use, it's unfortunate that we have minimized it and don't really see the significance of this particular ordinance that the Lord has given to the church. As you know, there are two ordinances that Jesus has given to the church, and one of them is the observance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded his church, made up of genuine believers, that they are to come together and remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there's a danger that we can do that in a routine manner. We can go through the motions as if it's no big deal at all, or we can do it ritualistically and almost think that, well, if I don't do it, I'm going to hell. But the Lord's Supper is significant. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 34 lets us know that. Jesus, speaking through the Apostle Paul, so to speak, as he recalls the words of Jesus, Paul says that if we don't properly eat of the bread and drink of the cup, that there are serious consequences to our lives as believers. The church at Corinth had a very glib attitude toward the Lord's Supper. It was just a part of what they did. And God stepped in and judged them. And some of them were weak. Some of them were sick. Some of them even died because they abused the Lord's Supper. So we need to keep in mind and understand that the Lord's Supper is significant. It's important. 
It's that time that we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, reflecting on the death of Jesus Christ in our place on Calvary's cross. Our passage today presents us with the historical roots of the Lord's Supper. And that's why I've labeled the message the Last Supper. This is the last time that the Lord Jesus Christ will eat a meal with his disciples on earth. It's Thursday, and on Friday, he will be crucified. He will be killed. He will die in our place. So in a very real sense, this is the Last Supper. And this Last Supper is the final meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And I trust that as we go through these verses, it will deepen our conviction, our affection for what's known as the Lord's Supper. Consider with me in verses 12 through 16 the preparation for the Passover meal. When you think about the Last Supper, you cannot divorce it from the Passover meal. Uh, The setting for these verses in the preparation of the meal is given to us in verse 12. It's on the first day of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. The first day of the festival that was seven days long that consisted of eating unleavened bread. And Mark provides us with further detail. He says it's when the lamb was killed, the lamb was sacrificed. And so this was a major time in the people of God, the Jewish people, when they would come to Jerusalem and they would observe the Passover. They would remember and reflect on that historic event when God, in his marvelous grace, allowed the death angel to pass over those whose doorposts and lintels were covered with blood and The death angel passed over, but for the rest, the death angel took the firstborn of a household. And so the Passover was remembered among the Jews. They came from everywhere to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And Mark is telling us the time right now is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the time when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And it's at this time that the disciples asked Jesus a question. Jesus, where is it that you want to observe the Passover? Where should we go and set up the Passover meal for you? Jesus was a good Jew. He observed the Passover year after year after year. In the Gospel of John, we learn of the times that he would come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And so they knew this, the disciples knew this, and they asked Jesus, where is it that you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
The focus is on Jesus because he would be the host. He would lead the Passover meal. And Jesus and his disciples faced the same challenge that a lot of the traveling Jews faced. Many of them didn't live in Jerusalem, but they had come for this religious feast. And so they needed somewhere to lodge. They needed somewhere to eat the Passover meal. The Lord responded to their question by sending two disciples. Mark doesn't mention them, but they're Peter and John. And the Lord sends them with instructions. He says, go, follow, say, and prepare. But when you look at verses 13 through 15 a little bit more carefully, Jesus says, go into Jerusalem, these two disciples, and a man is going to meet you. Not just any man, but a man carrying a jar. And what's unusual about that is most jars of water were carried by women, not by men. But, but a man carrying a jar would meet these two disciples. And Jesus says, follow him. Follow this servant as he goes into his master's home. And once he goes into his master's home, you go into the master's home also. And you say to the owner of the home, the teacher, the the, the rabbi, wants to know where you have a room for him to eat the Passover with his disciples. And he's going to point out to you where in his house there is an upper room that's large, that's furnished, that's prepared. In other words, a room where Jesus and his disciples could eat the Passover meal. And Jesus said, prepare the meal. Make sure the lamb has been sacrificed. Make sure you have all of the elements to observe the Passover meal, the wine, the herbs, etc., etc. And in verse 16, the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Told them to do. They went into the city. And it all happened exactly the way that Jesus said it would happen. And they prepared the Passover meal. Now, some people come to this text and say that it all happened because Jesus, in advance, made arrangements with the owner of the house to eat the Passover meal there. And that might be true, but I prefer to think that this is evidence of the divine knowledge of Jesus. Remember, he's the God-man. And though even sometimes he's limited in his knowledge, here he's able to look into the future and to prophesy that these two disciples will be met by a man who's carrying a a, a jar of water, that that they will follow this man into the master's home. The the master's home will be, uh, uh, be a place where they will speak to the owner, And the owner will point out a room, and they will actually prepare the
the Passover meal in that place. The disciples, Peter and John, when they left, they trusted the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They listened to his instructions, and they had full confidence that what Jesus told them to do would take place and they would be able to prepare for the Passover meal. That's the kind of Lord, the kind of Savior that we have. That when he tells us how to navigate life, when he tells us how to handle trials and tribulation, when he tells us how we can have eternal life, when he tells us how we can have a marriage that honors him and pleases him, when he tells us those things, we can fully trust him that it will work out if we obey him. That's the kind of Jesus we have. When he speaks to us through his word, and when we have these epistles that tell us how to live, they come from the Lord of the church. And he's saying, trust me. Rely upon me. Depend upon me. I know it might seem hard to fathom. I know you're probably not expecting a man to have a jar of water on his head. I know you think it's unlikely that you'll go into a room that is perfectly set up for the Passover meal. But but the Two disciples, Peter and John, they trusted the Lord and they were willing to obey him and to do what he called them to do. And we need to learn from that. We don't need to invent our own plans and do it our way. We don't need to follow Frank Frank Sinatra and sing I did it my way. Because when you do that, Many times, it ends up an absolute mess. And so what Jesus is telling us, what these disciples illustrate for us, is that we simply need to trust the Lord and obey him. That he is the one that you can count on. And as Michael said in leading that song, We we don't trust money. We don't trust politicians. Our our help comes from the Lord. And the wonderful thing is that the Lord has given us help through his word to guide us and direct us and to lead us. And so don't let this preparation for the Passover meal pass you by. Learn how these disciples understood that Jesus was in control, that he works out all the details. And so Peter and John prepared the Passover meal. Consider also verses 17 through 21, the announcement of the betrayal. The last meal that Jesus is having with his disciples is the time in which a stunning revelation is made 
not to the readers of Mark, like you and me, but to the disciples of Jesus. When we read Mark, we already know that there's going to be one who betrays Jesus. We learned that in Mark chapter 3, and we saw it last week, how Judas Iscariot made plans with the chief priests to betray Jesus. So we're not shocked when, we, when Jesus announces his betrayer, the betrayal, but the disciples are. They're not aware that this is going to happen. And so Jesus makes this announcement. And he makes it in the evening of the day, first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when they killed the lambs. On that evening, Jesus and his disciples, the 12 is how they're identified. They go to the upper room to eat the Passover meal. We don't know if it was literally 12 of them or if it was 10, because remember, Peter and uh, John have already gone and prepared the upper room. And it could have been they stayed there, and then Jesus and the rest of the 12 came. But regardless, they're all together now. They're in the upper room, that large upper room, that prepared and furnished upper room. And they're eating the Passover meal. And it's while they're eating the Passover meal, that is reclining at the table, eating of the various elements of the Passover meal, that Jesus makes a shocking revelation. He says to them, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The, the handing over of Jesus to be killed was not new truth in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, the Lord told his disciples ahead of time as he was on his death march to Jerusalem. He told them on three separate occasions that he would be handed over. And not only would he be handed over, but he'd be handed over to be killed. That they would kill him. But he would rise from the dead on the third day. But Jesus opens up his mouth and makes a solemn statement. An emphatic statement. He says, verily. I say to you, truly I say to you, literally, amen, I say to you. He's saying, look, this is certain. One of you will betray me. And as we pointed out last Sunday, that was unexpected. When it said that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, would betray Jesus. We would expect it from a chief priest. We would expect it from a scribe. We would expect it from the elders. But one of Jesus' own disciples, 
one of the twelve. And that's what shocked them. That's what stunned them. Jesus got in their face and said solemnly, truthfully, it will come to pass that one of you, one of you twelve, one of you who's actually enjoying this Passover meal with me, you will hand me over. It will be you who will turn me over to be killed. It won't be my enemies. It will be someone in my own ranks. And they were distressed. They were grieved. They loved the Lord. They had their problems. They had their failures. But they loved the Lord and they followed the Lord. And now their master, their Lord is saying to them, one of you will hand me over. One of you is the betrayer. And so they became grieved. They became distressed. Their souls were crushed. And one by one, they come to the Lord and they ask him the question, Surely, Lord, not I. When I learned my English, it was surely, Lord, not me, but that's incorrect grammar. Surely, Lord, not I. Each one of them asked that question with the expectation and the hope that Jesus would respond by saying, No, it is not you who will betray me. But Jesus didn't answer any of their questions. Instead, he confirmed that it would be one of the twelve. He says, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. One who eats with him, one who dips with him in the bowl. And by saying that, he's saying it's someone that I have a very, very close, intimate relationship. It's someone that right now, as we're eating, we are double dipping. We are both putting our food in the same sauce, so to speak, the same bowl. It's like Jesus said to them, it's one that I'm sharing the straw with. As we drink water, one who's close, one who's intimate, one who has become like family. I don't drink after you guys, and hopefully you don't drink after me, but I'll drink from the same cup as my wife. I'll use the same straw if necessary as my wife, even though there'll be lipstick and et cetera on the straw. But, but we don't do that with those that we aren't really close and intimate with. And sometimes even with my granddaughter, she likes to take a drink and everything else goes right back in the drink. And sometimes, out of love, I'll, I'll drink after her. So the Lord is saying it's one who is part of my family. It's one who is intimate with me. It's one who is close. He's not talking about some outsider, but one who has walked with him for three plus years. 
Jesus goes on to let them know that this announcement of betrayal fits with Scripture. It's part of the Old Testament that Jesus would use his term, go. He will go just as it is written in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53. And what talks about Jesus going to the cross, being crushed for the iniquities of his people. So the Old Testament proclaimed that Jesus would go. But even though Jesus would go, that doesn't mean that the one who betrayed him would avoid the penalty for handing him over. Yes, it was a part of God's sovereign plan that from eternity past, that Jesus would come into this world and that he would die on Calvary's cross, that he would die by individuals handing him over to the religious leaders who would put him to death. But there's human responsibility here. The one who does the actual handing over will not escape penalty. He he will not be able to say, oh, God's sovereign. So I'm excused. No, Jesus says it's better that the person who betrays him not be born at all. The penalty is going to be so severe that it's better that that person not have been born not have been conceived in his mother's womb, not have been born nine months later. That's how severe the punishment will be for betraying and handing over Jesus to be killed. We should never have a lighthearted attitude toward betraying Jesus. We we never want to be the instrument, the tool of Satan. To, quote, be unfaithful to our Lord. What an announcement at the Last Supper. It shook them to the very core of their being. And yet the reality stands that one of the family of Jesus, the 12 disciples, we know who it is, will betray Jesus. They didn't know, but all of them knew they were capable. Do you get that? They knew that they were capable. And so we need to understand that we're capable of failing God. And that's why we need to cry out, to God and need to cling to the fact that we need his help in all the circumstances of life. Don't trust in yourself. I've said that many times based upon Psalm 119. The the psalmist made the declaration. No, in Psalm 119, verse 10, that he is capable of wondering from God. He's capable of a strain. He's capable of being unfaithful. 
And he says, God, I've sought you with all my heart. But please do not let me wander from thy commandments. God, I seek you, I pursue you, but yet I don't trust myself. I need your enablement, I need your help. Don't let me wander. These men knew that they were capable of handing over the Lord. And what an announcement the Lord made. The last thing that I want you to see and consider is the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 22 through 26. The the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples is the time that the Lord's Supper is inaugurated. It is in the context of eating the Passover meal. And Jesus will take some of the elements of the Passover meal and use that to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. This is the historical origin of Holy Communion, the Lord's Table. The inauguration focuses first on bread. Jesus took bread. But before he took the bread, and then after he took the bread, he gave thanks to God. He blessed God. And then that bread that he took, he broke it and gave it and said to his disciples, Eat, this is my body. Those are familiar words to us. The other gospel accounts talk about it. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about it. But the Lord says to his disciples that the bread is his body. Now I hope you know that he's not talking literally. The Lord didn't start dismembering his body, cutting off fingers or hand and say, here, you take this and eat this, and Peter, you take this, and John, you eat that. No, he's talking figuratively. The, 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 the bread represents, it symbolizes the body that our Lord of glory took on when he left heaven's glory and came into this world and died on the cross. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that, that the bread represents his body. It symbolizes his body. That he is the Lamb of God. And they are to eat, participate, that body. Symbolizing the fact that they are one with Jesus in who he is. The focus then shifts to the cup. Jesus took the cup of wine. And it was the real deal. It wasn't grape juice. Uh, It was wine. He took the cup of wine. And before he did anything with it, he gave thanks to God again. Just like he thanked God and blessed God for the bread, he did the same thing for the cup. His focus of attention was on God and who he is and what he has done. He took that cup and gave it to his disciples. 
and they all drank of the cup. Meaning that from that one cup, each of the disciples drank from it. I'm of the opinion that Judas Iscariot is already gone at this time. He was probably there for the announcement, and then he leaves to make arrangements to betray Jesus, to bring it to reality. So he's probably not drinking of the cup. But each one of the disciples drank from a common cup, a shared cup. Now, we don't follow that here at Fairview. We're not going to drink from the same cup. It's hard enough for us to be in the same room with each other. And so we're not violating any principle. We're not sinning because we don't all drink from the same cup. But the principle is there, that there should be unity in the drinking of the cup. And Jesus tells them that this cup is my blood. And obviously, Jesus has not taken from his veins blood and put it in the cup and told him to drink it. It's not literal. Again, it's symbolic. But Jesus says that this cup, the wine in it, represents my blood. And blood, when it talks about in relationship to Jesus and, and dying and being sacrificed, speaks of his death. So when the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus Christ, it's talking about his death. How on Calvary's cross he shed his blood by taking your place and my place. But Jesus says, this cup is my blood. And he wanted them to drink the cup. Understanding that it represented Jesus Christ dying on Calvary's cross. So here is the Lord. The day before his death, once again, what is he doing? He is announcing to his disciples that he is about to die. This is historic. This is the most important event next to the resurrection in the life of our Lord. He he has told them repeatedly, over and over again, I'm about to die. And once again, with veiled language, he tells them about this cup which is his blood, the blood of the covenant. And this refers to the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where God says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to put my law in your life and on your heart. And the death of Jesus Christ ratified and confirm this new covenant as opposed to the old covenant that was ratified by the sprinkling of the blood of animals that you find in Exodus 24. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. And then he says one other thing concerning this blood, which is poured out for many. Jesus said, I'm about to die. My blood will be poured out. 
not for one person, but for many. And when he uses many, he's really saying for all. That salvation is going to be made possible to all. My blood will be poured out. And is speaking of the horrific sacrificial death of crucifixion that Jesus experienced on the cross. And on that cross, so to speak, his blood was poured out for many as opposed to one. So that you, in time and history, could put your faith in your trust in Christ and be saved. So that I could do the same thing. The basis of forgiveness of sin all rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. The ordinance that consisted of the bread and of the cup was designed today for us to look back, to look back and remember Jesus' death by eating the bread and drinking the cup. But it's more than just a looking back. Jesus lets him know it's a looking forward. He tells him, indeed, this is the last meal. There will be no more eating of the Passover meal or any meal between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus goes on to say in verse number 25, Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It is the last meal. Never, ever, no longer will I drink this cup, eat this bread, have this meal with you. This is the last time. But even though it's the last time, Jesus said something is going to happen in the future where it will exceed what you disciples are experiencing right now. I won't ever, ever eat this Passover meal, this Last Supper with you again. But the time is coming. In the future, there'll be a banquet meal that Jesus will be responsible for as part of when his kingdom is here on earth. And instead of drinking wine, it's going to be a banquet. It's going to be a feast. And it's not just for the disciples. It's going to be for all of the people of God. And so as Jesus tells him and inaugurates the Lord's Supper, yes, look back. After I die, look back. Eat of the bread, drink of the juice, knowing that I died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, but look forward. Keep doing this until that time in the future. You're going to have the ultimate banquet, the ultimate feast that will be a part of the kingdom of God. And so verse 26 says that after singing a hymn, that Jesus and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. They probably sang Psalms 
113 to 118. But they sung a hymn. And every time I read this verse, Mark 12, verse, Mark 14, verse 26, I think about my father-in-law who's in heaven because every time he would have the communion service at the very end, he would remind us who participated that we too are singing a hymn. We too go out. We don't go out to the Mount of Olives, but we go out to a lost world, a sinning world. And isn't that what Paul told the Corinthians? Eat of the bread, drink of the cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The purpose of this message is not for you to call me and set up a time to have the Lord's Supper. Rather, as we look at these verses, public worship ought to be a priority for us. We ought to prize and treasure the privilege of eating of the bread and drinking of the cup in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ought to prize the fact that we can proclaim his death to a lost world and that we are to do it until that time when we will enjoy that banquet feast sometime during the kingdom of God on earth. The songwriter expressed it well. The one who wrote the song, Lead Me to Calvary. The refrain in that song is, Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thy agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. The Lord's Supper is designed to lead you and me and every genuine believer to Calvary. Passages like Mark 14, 12 through 26 are designed to lead us to Calvary. They're designed for us to make sure that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, that we eat of the bread, which represents his body, and when we drink of the cup, which represents his blood of the covenant that he shed and poured out for you and me, that we might have forgiveness of sin, that when we do that, that we will proclaim his death and look forward to that marvelous, amazing banquet meal for the people of God when the kingdom of God is set up here on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Last Supper. Thank you for seeing its relationship to the Passover meal. Thank you for pointing out to us the horrific sin of someone betraying you, denying you, and handing you over. Thank you, Father, for the institution of the Lord's Supper. Pray that from now on, 
in a more meaningful way, in a more powerful way, in a more significant way. That when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross, that it will be new and fresh for each of us. Use the Lord's Supper to lead us to Calvary. Use your word, God, to lead us to Calvary. Help us never, ever to forget your love for us that was ultimately displayed when your son died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Father, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of salvation for them. That they might understand that Jesus died on the cross and his blood was poured out for them. That they might have forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.